Lord, we ask you to be with us as we look at your word, guide and show us what you would want us to know from this section. And we thank you for each person that's here. And we thank you for the nice gentle rains that we're having to take and help out with our drought conditions. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Jeremiah 26, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came the word of the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak unto all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command you to speak unto them diminish not a word. If so be that they hearken and turn every man from his evil way, that I may repent me of the evil which I proposed to do unto them because of the evil of their doings. And you shall say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, If you will not hearken unto me, And all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. All right. So Jeremiah is being sent, and he's being sent in the during the reign of Jehoiakim. Now, during this period of time, the last three kings of Israel are Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, and Jehoiachin. So he is the third from the last king of Judah before they are taken into captivity into Babylon. And so God sends him, and he, and he is the son of Josiah, which was one of the great kings of Israel. And this is how fast evil turned on the nation. Josiah gets rid of all the idols, gets everybody worshiping God, at least outwardly. His son takes over, and immediately they go right back to idol worship and, and everything. And the message comes to Jehoiakim, and he says... And God tells him in verse 2, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak unto all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. And I find this very interesting. He is not sent to give these words to the idol worshipers. He's sent to the house of God. He's sent to the temple to talk to the people who are coming supposedly to worship God. All right? He's not going out in the streets and the byways and getting everybody who's not coming to, into the temple. He's going to the temple to give this message from God. And it's a very interesting message because God is condemning them. And these are the ones that are coming. This would be like telling us to go to our churches and, and, and make this broadcast to our churches. All right, So he's going to the temple, the ones who are actually supposedly worshiping God at the temple, all right? Uh, and it says, and don't diminish, don't reduce any word that I have told you to give. And this is one of the hardest things sometimes when you have something that's going to hit somebody hard and you're a teacher or a pastor or the prophet to say something that you know is going to bother people. And, Jer and God is warning Jeremiah, don't leave off anything that I tell you to say knowing that he's probably going to be threatened and thrown into jail because that's what happens to Jer Jeremiah almost every time he speaks. They, they threaten his life, and they're going to do so in this, in this chapter as well. Uh, and he just knows that every time he says something that they don't want to hear, 
They throw him into prison, throw him into pits, beat him, put him in stocks, uh, threaten his life. You know, I, I don't know that I would have wanted to have been Jeremiah because uh, every time he spoke, somebody wanted to kill him. Now, God said, I'm going to make you, a, you know, if you remember at the very beginning of this book, he said, I'm going to make you a, a pillar of brass and, a, and iron. I will make you stand. Nobody can touch you. And basically, he said, nobody's going to touch you until I allow it. But every time he's turning around, somebody is threatening him. All right? Uh, and this is what's going to happen in this chapter as well. And then he says, if they will hearken and turn from every man from his evil ways, then that I may repent of this evil which I propose to do unto him because of the evil of their doing. God says, and note, again, the audience that he's talking and saying the evil of their doing are the people coming to the temple. Which means they were probably worshiping idols as well as going to God and saying, well, we're going to worship these idols and then on Saturday... Uh, the Sabbath day, we're going to go to the temple and we're going to worship God and, and hopefully one of these gods are going to protect us. And we'll, we'll honor this God, you know, to a degree. And this is something we as Christians have to be very careful of. Do we honor God to a degree, but we look at other activities and other gods to, to worship? And, you know, we do have other gods in our day and age that we worship. We just don't have statues. You know, we worship them by putting all our time and effort in that, uh, you know, uh, saying pleasure is what I'm living for or work is what I'm living for, uh, entertainment is what I'm living for. Those are all gods. And, they've, and if you go back to what these gods in the Old Testament stood for, that is exactly what they did. Moloch was the god of prosperity and, and work. Uh, Astoroth was the god, uh, goddess of fertility or, or sexual activity, and we are very much into these gods in this day and age. We just don't name them after those gods. But we still do the same things that you did to worship these gods. Moloch, you offered your children so that you would get blessed, prosperous. What do we do in our day and age? We have abortion that is to get rid of these kids so that we can be prosperous and not have be burdened down by kids. All right? All of these gods are still being worshipped in our day and age today. We just don't name them the way they did back then. But the same activities are being used to worship, the, worship those, those deities. And so he's telling these people, it's time to repent. And this one is really close to Josiah's time of repentance. They, they, should, they know what this means. And how fast that they're coming. And Jeremiah is told to go talk to these people who are only a couple of years away from Josiah's revival and saying, it's time to repent. And this is where we are in our world today. It's time for our world to repent or face judgment. And unfortunately, it needs to start in most churches. The church members themselves need to repent. Uh, we have so many different Christian churches that are totally way off. Not, I don't even know that they're Christian anymore by what they're teaching. But even with many of our Christian churches, there's problems oftentimes with are we really following God or not? Or are we doing things our own way? And this is something we all have to be careful of. It's so easy to walk in our own understanding and not God's ways. Uh, because, number one, we're human. We have us in nature. It feels good to do things our way, we think, but the consequences of doing things our own way are never good. 
but yes, we don't think about the consequences until we're in the middle of the consequences, and then we go, why, why me? Why am I going through all the stuff that I'm going through? <laughs> and if we just think back, well, oh, I made this decision that wasn't biblical, I did this thing that wasn't biblical, and we can recognize that we're dealing with consequences. At the prison, all of the education classes have, you can choose your actions, but you can't choose the consequences. Yeah, and it's a very true statement. Even for all of us, we can choose what we want to do. God gives us that freedom. But he gets to choose the consequences for our actions. And then we can't complain about the consequences because we're getting the consequences that we deserve for what we did. And yet we'll complain about the consequences instead of repent, as Jeremiah is telling the people to do. And he says, repent and the Lord will change his mind about the destruction of this nation. Now, Josiah's re repentance and, and turning to God, God told him, what you're doing is good, but it is not enough for me to turn away the consequences for this nation. But he goes, I will not do it in your day. It will happen in your descendants' days. And so... And God immediately, as soon as Jehoiakim takes over, he turns away from God and leads the people away from God. And so we're in this, and he says, And this so he said, If you will not hearken unto me to walk by, in my law, which I have set before you, to hearken to the words of my servants, the, the prophets whom I have sent to, to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not hearkened. So he says, I'm sending you people, and if you won't listen and obey his law. Now, we've talked about this several times. The law will not save us, you know, but there is good consequences for obeying God's laws. To totally flout God's rules and, and laws means that we're going to have consequences that are bad uh, happen to us. And he says, if you will just obey my law, if you will just turn to me and obey what I've said, then I will repent. And he goes, and I've sent prophets to you rising up early and sending them, and you have not listened. In other words, you would hear them early in the morning all the way till evening. And this is something that God is telling them, that all of this is coming down, and you have all of this happening, and you're not listening to the word of God. And you know, in our day and age, it's real easy to hear the word of God if you just want to. We have all kinds of channels that have practically nothing but preaching in this area. There's at least three channels that have nothing but preaching on them and several that have a lot of preaching on them. Uh, we, you can go to the Internet and have lots of different preaching you know, from individuals, if you like, or you know, a whole mix. We can hear teaching all the time and usually good teaching if we, if we take and spend time looking for it. And this is what God's saying. I am sending you these people early in the morning <laughs> all the way till late and it says and you have not hearkened and this word for hearken is to hear and obey okay it's not just saying you you're not you're not even hearing but you're hearing them but you are not choosing to obey that word and it's kind of amazing to me how many times i've seen people that hear what's being said and choose not to obey it i get to deal with about three of them in my in my workplace that i get to supervise that will never do what they're told to do, you know, unless you threaten them. And I hate to try to do things that way. They just, uh, it's never occurred to me to argue with every instruction given by bosses, and these guys argue with everything that they're told to do. 
even if it's by policy and everything, if it's not what they want to do, they argue. And it's like, would you guys just do what you're supposed to do? Here it is in black and white in the policy manual. <laughs> do it this way. And yet many times they won't. And this is what God's saying to his people. We're telling you what to do, what God desires. We're asking you to repent, and you're refusing to obey. And, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, and we've mentioned this before. The, the Jewish leaders say that there are 613 commandments in the, in the, in the Pentateuch. Uh, I've never counted them. I will take their word for it. Uh, you know, well, I know we can't keep the 10 that we know that we talk about, the 10 commandments, but there's a whole bunch of others, and I know that there are a lot there. Uh, a lot there. And, the, and the rabbis have counted 613 of them. Uh, and I will take their word. I'm not going to go about taking and counting how many rules there are in the Bible. I have no, no desire to count all the rules in the Bible. All I know is that the law teaches us that we cannot keep God's rules. And, and as I said, you know, we as Christians just deal with the Ten Commandments that came down off of Sinai. And we can't even keep Ten Commandments. So I don't even want to think about the 603 that I don't know all about. Because I know we're not keeping those as well. And neither were the Jews. And Jesus, and, and they're telling him, you're not repenting. You're not coming into a relationship with God. And this is what happened with most of the Jewish people. They did not understand that God wanted a relationship with them, not just obedience. Abraham had all kinds of problems, but he had a relationship with God. Isaac and Jacob had a relationship with God. Noah had a relationship with God. All of, our, all of the people that we know of had a relationship. They knew that it was more than just obeying a bunch of rules. And Jesus really emphasized the fact that it was to be in a relationship with God. And this is the thing I love about Christianity. Christianity is not a religion where I follow a bunch of rules trying to please God. It is accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and now I'm in a relationship with God which allows him to change me from the inside out. And I don't have to sit there and go, okay, how many of my 613 rules have I obeyed today? <laughs> Whoops, I, I, I'm under half, I'm in trouble. Uh, oh, I, I made 75%. Well, sorry, you're still in trouble. Because <laughs> if we haven't kept it 100%, we haven't kept it correctly. And so we have to understand that we're in a relationship, and this is the beauty of it. Jesus comes and dwells in us so that we can now have a relationship with him which is going to fulfill us. And there's no other religion. I love talking to people and they're going, well, you can never know whether you're going to go to heaven or not. I go, you can know absolutely. They go, what do you mean? I go, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not going to heaven. Well, that's pretty judgmental. I'm going, yeah, but that's what he said. If you don't know him, you're not going. You know him, you're going to heaven. End of story, it's all over. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by him. And the world doesn't like hearing that because it's so narrow of a path. And they're going, that's so narrow. And I've always told people, you know what, i got an idea for you. I want you to go to the airport and just randomly get on an airplane and expect that you're going to Washington, D.C. Now, I don't want you to look at any signs. Just randomly walk in and get on one airplane and tell me where you're in. And, no matter, and you may truly believe that you're going to Washington, D.C. But if that pilot's not going to Washington, D.C., you're not getting to Washington, D.C. You know, well, that's pretty narrow. You're right. It's narrow. <laughs> All right. But that is the way it is. Jesus said, I am the only way. 
and we need to understand this whole process. And he says, if you don't listen to him, verse 6 says, then I will make this house like Shiloh and make this city a curse. Now, I'm sure everybody knows what he's talking about when he says, I'll make it like Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh is where the tabernacle was set up when they came into the promised land. All right? And that is where it stayed. And when God, when David moved the tabernacle, the tabernacle and all the items of the tabernacle to the Jerusalem, into the temple, uh, Shiloh became a wasteland and empty. It had no spiritual residue there on it. It became an empty place. Nobody went there to worship. Nobody went there and dwelled there and it, fell and, and it just went into chaos in this. And But Shiloh was where it was established. This is where Samuel worshipped. This is where everybody worshipped up until the time David moved the items of the tabernacle into the temple. And there's a st there are stories that the entire tent just was was left and, and rotted away after the temple was built. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what, the, that's what the historians tell us. And God is saying, this is what it was like. The Shiloh was wasted. I'm going to make this city, Jerusalem, just like Shiloh. All right? And again, this is an anathema statement to the, to the Jewish people because this is where God's temple is. They, they believed that Jerusalem would never fall because God dwelt in Jerusalem. And because God dwelt in Jerusalem, he would never let anything bad happen to Jerusalem no matter what they did. So when these prophets would come in and say, you need to repent or else, they're going, or else what? This is God's city. He's not going to destroy his city. And that was their mindset. They were so absolutely sure of this. Even in Jesus' day when Jerusalem had been rebuilt, they still had that attitude of, this is Jerusalem, the temple's here. They will never, this city will never fall. And that is what they said. The temple's up there. We're not, it'll not fall. And yet God brought judgment upon Jerusalem in 70 AD as well. And the temple was destroyed and the city was destroyed. But the people, even to that day, believed that there was not ever going to happen because this was God's temple. His, his altar is up there. The mercy seat is there in the temple. All these things are there. God will never let anything bad happen to his temple. They didn't realize that the temple was just stuff. It was symbols of God. It wasn't God himself. And they didn't realize that they worshipped a God that was God over the entire universe and as he said to Solomon that the temple was not big enough to hold him, but that he would put his presence there as long as the people were obedient. And they never understood. And even for us as Christians sometimes, I've, I've met Christians who believe that, you know, you're really not in the presence of God unless you're in the sanctuary where the services go and the messages are being preached. And it's like, well, I'm sorry your God is so small. My God is everywhere. You know, but I have met many of them that, you know, that's a special place. Nothing will happen to the church because of that room in the church. And it's like, guys, you're making the same mistake the Jews did about Jerusalem. Now, we kind of spread it amongst all the churches out there. But, you know, do we really believe that God is everywhere present? Do we believe he dwells in us and that wherever we go, we'll bring God into, the, into a situation? And... The Jews mostly did not understand that. 
And he's saying, I'm going to make this city, the temple in this city, like Shiloh. And he says, I'm going to make it a curse. And when Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered the city, he took and dismantled the entire temple brick by brick because the gold melted into the bricks and his people wanted all the gold off the temple. And then just for good measure, they took down all, this, all the walls and all, this, all the buildings in Jerusalem and made it a total waste. And just as God said, I'm going to make this city a curse to it. And Jeremiah made that prophecy. He's not the only one that made that prophecy, but he's the most recent one to the destruction of Israel, of, of, of uh, Jerusalem on that. And then it says, And so the priest and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. So lots and lots of people are hearing him. And note this, it says, The priest, the prophets, and all the people. And now we're going to see their response, <laughs> which they didn't go out cheering him. <laughs> all right. Verse 8. Now it came to pass when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak unto all the people that the priests and the prophets and all the people took him, saying, You shall surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. All right. He gets done speaking. Now, as far as they're concerned, he has spoken blasphemous against the temple, blasphemy against the city, and at the very least, treason. <laughs> All right? And can you imagine this? I don't know how many people were in the temple this day that he's, pre you know, that he's speaking. All the priests, however many there was in that particular division. Whatever false prophets there were in the temple... And however many people, let's say it's several hundred, even a thousand people, and it says all of them were against him. Now, I don't know that every single one of them, but you know, one thing about a crowd, even if you're not in agreement with the crowd, you tend to stay silent unless you're pretty bold like Jeremiah was, and you appear to go along with it. And everybody is out to get Jeremiah. They are saying that he deserves to die because of what he has said. And again, from the priest's perspective, he has spoken against the temple, and they almost made the temple equal to God. In Jesus' day, Jesus said, you can, I don't want you swearing by the temple. I don't want you swearing by the altar. I don't want you swearing by the, the mercy seat. You know, uh, they were doing the same thing. This temple had been raised to the place of it was almost an idol in itself. All right? Now, they would tell you they're worshiping God, but the temple itself had become the idol. This is where I'm going. I have to go to the temple to worship God. I cannot worship God anywhere else. This is so special. God dwells there. They would give you all the right thing, but the building itself had almost become an idol to them. And so the priests are looking at him, how can you dare speak against this temple? and say that it's going to become like Shiloh and be desolate. How can you, this city is God's city. How can you be saying that it's going to be destroyed? And this bothers them. You know, and from a governmental position, he's saying that the whole time, that Jerusalem is going to fall. That's the capital city. So from a governmental side, they're saying, uh, now you're speaking treason. 
You're, you're taking the heart of the people away from them to stand up for our country by telling them we're going to be destroyed. Now, he hadn't truly said they were going to be destroyed. He says, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. So he, gave, he gives them an option. Repent, things stay the way they are. Reject God, destruction. Same thing every prophet has said every time they call for repentance. Repent or end up being destroyed and going into captivity or, or death or whatever the case might be. He gives them an option, but they don't accept the option. They hear one thing. They don't hear the repent and have everything stay the way it is. They hear destruction. You're, you're, you're telling us everything's going to be destroyed. You have a big problem, Jeremiah. You are, you are a treasonous, blasphemous prophet who cannot be speaking for God because God would never speak against his temple. That is their attitude. They don't understand that God is speaking against the temple because the temple doesn't mean anything to God. All right? The temple does not mean anything to God because it is just a building that he said, if you obey, I will pray my presence there. But he wants his presence in each of his people in a relationship. And yet they have placed the temple so high that they're willing to send Jeremiah to death for saying that the temple will be destroyed. And this is kind of a scary thing because this happens even in our day and age when people will go, how can you say something like that, like what you said? How can you say that these buildings aren't important? How can you say that, you know, these, I, I believe fully in the Bible, but you know, this, this book that I hold in my hands is not anything special in and of itself. The word and who it represents is what's special. I know people who will not get rid of an old Bible, period. Because the Bible itself is so special of a book, you know, and I understand to a degree what they're doing, but by the same token, it's the words and who the Bible represents that's important, not the actual book. Uh, when I went to a synagogue one time as, a, as an assignment just to visit, I watched them unlock this cabinet, take the scrolls out which were covered, and paraded around the sanctuary and everybody's reaching out to it and everything, and I'm going, all right, if they're actually looking at the words in that book, this is a great picture. The only problem was I don't think that's what they were doing. I think it was the actual scroll that they were lifting up. And it was very scary. It was a mixed feeling on that one. I'm going, either this is the greatest act of worship for God's love of God's word, or they're elevating the actual book to an awfully high place. And unfortunately, I feel like they were elevating the book to a high place. And I've seen it in churches, and I'm not saying it's bad, but I've seen many pastors who say, all right, we're going to read God's word, so everybody stand up because we're going to honor God's word. And I know that they have a pure heart to it, but I have a problem with how it's received by other people when they say that. You know, I believe that, yes, we should honor God's word. I have no problem with that. But I've also seen people go, well, we can't read God's word without standing, standing in honor of it. Well, okay, what is your heart attitude, though? Not just your position. You know, well, I've got to stand when I read God's word. Or I've got to sit when reading God's word. Or, or when I bow my head, you know, when I pray, I've got to bow my head and hold my hands together and, and pray. And unfortunately, we teach kids that way, usually because we want them to just to sit still and, not be, and behave while we're praying. But then they're taught that the only way you can pray is by sitting down, holding your hands, and bowing your head. And that's a scary idea that we're teaching them 
a ritualistic idea of how to, to worship God. And we see these rituals happen all the time, all over the place. I've said this before. Uh, I've grown up a lot of times, a good portion of my time in Baptist churches. Baptist churches tend to do two or three songs, announcements, special music, a message, and another song. You know, and if you violate that, a lot of times in a Baptist church, they go, oh, how can you do that? I thought it was funny when I added a fourth song to the, to the singing in the morning one time and somebody got upset about, it was, it was not the, you know, we have four songs. Okay, maybe we'll do two songs. I don't know. I just, I, I like to change things around just because I don't want people to get into this is how we worship. And, you know, I don't like to change it around too much because it's a lot more work to do my PowerPoints and everything when I make too many changes. But, but we don't want to get locked into any way of worshiping God. You know, maybe one day we'll just have the message first and then we'll sing a couple songs. I don't know what we'll do, but, you know, are we flexible enough to say God can be worshiped in the way he wants to be worshiped? And this is important for us to understand. These people, we worship God in a certain way. We go to the temple. Unless we go to the temple, we can't worship God. That's where the teachers are. That's where the offerings are made. And we can't go anywhere else and be able to be in God's presence. And almost true in that day and age because they didn't really understand the relationship factor. It was all about rules on it. All right, verse 10. When the princes of Judah heard these things, then they came up from the king's house into the house of the Lord and sat down at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. Then spoke the priest and the prophets unto the princes and to all the people, saying, This man is worthy to die, for he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. All right? So there's a almost riot starting in the temple. So the princes come down and saying, okay, well, we need to hold court. All right, we need to find out what is going on in the temple because they're ready to kill Jeremiah. And so they come down from the house and they sit down in the entry of the new gate. Now this, if you remember the story of Ruth and Boaz, the, what, where the court was held was at the city gates where the elders of the of the leaders at this time there's a king so the king king or prince would have to come and be the one sitting there but they came to the gate they came to the gate of the temple and said okay now we're going to hold court all right we're going to hold court and find out what is this chaos going on over here why is everybody so upset uh, and again i can almost picture a riots going on you know all the priests all the prophets all the people in the temple are grabbing hold of Jeremiah, probably trying to rip him to shreds, getting him out to, the, getting him out to where they can uh, stone him. And the princess show up, which means they had to have shown up fairly quick. Otherwise, Jeremiah would have been dead at this point in time. And so they show up, and uh, basically they start holding court, and the priests and the prophets say unto them, This man is worthy to die. Now, I do not know what law that they're basing this on. There's no scriptural basis for them to say because he spoke against the city, yeah, he should die. Just their law. Of, yeah. Just their law. Their rules. The same thing that got Jesus in trouble. He never violated any of God's 613 laws, if the Jews are right, but he violated 
everything they said about the law. All right. Uh, the Jews have this habit of what they call building a fence around God's law so that you, as long as you don't, if you could violate their fence, you still don't violate God's laws. All right, so they would say, well, here's what God says and here's what we say. You know, God's law is right here and then we're going to build this great big fence around it so that you can't accidentally violate God's laws. And then they get mad at you for breaking their laws. All right, so this is what he's broken. He's broken their law. He has spoken against the temple. He has spoken against the city. Yeah, they've broken the rabbi's laws, the priest's laws, but not God's law. And they're saying, because you've done this, you are worthy to die. All he's done was give them God's word. All right, so he definitely has not violated what God has said. All right, but they're coming in and saying, he is worthy to die for he has prophesied against the city, and we have heard with, and, and you have heard with your own ears. In other words, you have heard him say these things. Firsthand, you have heard, you've heard his testimony that he has spoken against this city. All right? He has committed treason. He has spoken against the city. He has spoken against God because this is God's city. This is irritating them. And they're saying, because he has done all this stuff, he is worthy to have his head taken off, which in their case actually would be stoning. <laughs> you know, but they're going off with in our vocabulary of today's world. All right. Uh, then spoke Jeremiah unto all the princes and to all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against the, this house and against the city all the words that you have heard. Now, Therefore now amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God, the Lord and the Lord will repent him of the evil that he has pronounced against you. As for me, behold, I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good and meet unto you. But know you for certain that if you put me to death, you shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and upon the inhabitants thereof. For of a truth, the Lord has sent me to, unto you to speak these words in your ears." He's still being very bold. All right? He has not stopped, even though everybody is against him. He is still standing strong. My prayer is that when I ever get into this same situation, that I will stand strong as Jeremiah did or as Isaiah did and say, God, I just want to stand strong in spite of. This is what happened to the disciples. Every one of the disciples other than John suffered martyrdom for standing for God and facing him. And some of them were very brutal uh, judgments. Thomas was run through with lances in the courtyard in India. Uh, can't remember which one, but one of them was, was quartered. And that meant they tied him to four animals and drug him into four different directions. All right, Many of them were beheaded, crucified, uh, skinned alive. I mean, they were tortured because they stood up for God. And our prayer as we enter into a time of more and more danger, even in America, we need to be praying, God, give me the strength to stand for you in spite of whatever happens. And here's Jeremiah doing just that. He says, the Lord sent me <laughs> to prophesy these words about this house and this temple. He goes, I am not saying these of my own accord. And when you think about this, the enemy attacking him the way it is 
and he is against a majority of people and he still stands for God indicates very much that he was standing for God and not himself because any one of us that didn't know for sure we were standing for God would have said uh, let's see a thousand to one or two thousand to one I think I'll change my mind I'm not going to speak I'm not going to speak so boldly and we know that that's that's true you know, we look around, even if it's a couple of 10 or 20 against one, we kind of go, uh, do I want to keep this position? Jeremiah holds strong. It says, God has told me to do this. And it says in verse 13, therefore now amend, make good or, or right your ways. And obey the voice of the Lord your God and God and the Lord will repent him of the evil that he has pronounced against you. So here he is again repeating the message that they, did, they ignored the first part of the first time. Now he's speaking to the princes as well. Hey, it's real simple. Repent, and this stuff won't happen. Don't repent, and God is going to bring judgment. It's an amazing thing to me that even in our day, people do not hear the word repent. You know, we'll tell people that God wants them to return to him and be saved They'll ignore that and hear just the part where we tell them that if you don't, you go to hell. And all they hear is the, if you don't, you go to hell. And they actually don't even hear the, if you don't, they hear, you're going to hell. And that's all they hear. They don't hear the idea of repent and not, ha not have these things happen to you. Here the, the priest and the prophets and the people did not hear repent or this is going to happen. Now he's speaking to the the princes and say if you if we repent this isn't going to happen but you know and he says then he goes as for me behold i am in your hands or your power do what seems good unto you he says hey i'm at your you know god has told me what to do and now i'm in your hands i cannot do anything different this is the great statement that he's making he understands that whatever comes his way is of god it's the same thing the disciples said over and over in the book of Acts. Thank God we were found worthy to suffer. All right? And he says, God, you told me to do this. If I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer. And thank you that I was found worthy. He hasn't actually said the same words, but he's really saying that. I've done what I'm told to do, and now it's up to you on what you're going to do. I cannot stop you. What is he basically saying? I can't stop you from stoning me. If that's really what you feel you have to do, I can't stop you. I am in your power. There was too many of them. He couldn't have gotten away without God's help in the first place. And he says, I am in your power. He goes, verse 15, but know for a certain that if you put me to death, you shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city, upon the inhabitants. Therefore, the truth that the Lord has sent me unto you to speak the words in your ears. He says, if you kill me, you're killing an innocent man. This is a pretty bold statement that he's making, especially when there's at least hundreds, if not thousands of people against him. The princes are there saying, okay, your, your choice. You can, you can shed innocent blood. And that statement doesn't mean as much to us as it would to them, but he says, if you kill an innocent man, that death is upon you. The penalty for that death is upon you. It is murder. He goes, you are not bringing capital punishment, justified capital punishment. You are now committing cold-blooded murder with all the ramifications that God has on the, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. 
So he's saying, you're going to violate one of the Ten Commandments, basically, if you kill me, and my blood will be upon your heads. And so all of this comes down to this, because it says, of a truth, God sent me. He goes, I am telling you the truth, God sent me. Now there's, remember now we've had the priest and the prophets that were in the temple. The only problem is most of those prophets in the temple were false prophets. They told people what they wanted to hear. Right now, they, right now they're right now they're in a judge. They're 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 in a court situation. Even though it's at the gate, that's how they did their court. The princes are there. The priests and the and the prophets are the prosecuting attorneys and and the and giving testimony. And poor Jeremiah doesn't apparently even have a have a have a lawyer on his side. He, he's representing himself. <laughs> He's at their mercy. He knows that he's at their mercy. All right. But he basically says, if you kill me, I'm at your, I'm in your, I'm at your mercy. If you want to kill me, I can't stop you. You're going to think that you're executing me for good reasons, but God sent me to say these words, so you are going against God if you do this. So this is his defense. You know, you're saying that I have violated all your, all your rules, but God told me to do this. And now I'm sure the false prophets were saying, there's no way he said, you know, that God sent him because we, we're, we're the prophets of God and, you know, this is not what he told us, so he cannot be talking to, to Jeremiah. All right? And this is something that we're seeing even in our day because there are so many false teachers in our day that claim to be Christians that speak out different words and saying there's no problem. You know, they'll tell us things like God loves everybody. There's no way he'd send anybody to hell for rejecting rejecting him and it's like well i don't know what bible you're reading you know uh god is love yes but that doesn't mean he lets us do whatever he we want because he is also holy and righteous and just and we need to understand that god has other aspects other than just his love and even their statement that god is love is a misunderstanding of love you know, it's like I've said many times, I love my kids so much that I'm going to let them go play on I-40 during the busiest time of the road because I love them so much I can't tell them not to do it. No, my love would say, no, you're not playing on, on I-40. You're not playing in the middle of Stockton Hill Road. You're not, you're not going to do something that dumb. <laughs> that is true love. And yet people will say God would never do this because he is love. They don't understand love even you know and so here they're saying his defense is god told me to do this they're saying there's no way you did that you did this um, and so all of this is going on he says oh, if you just repent none of this will happen and again it seems like they don't hear this word repent all they're hearing is you're telling us that this city is going to be destroyed and this temple is going to be destroyed and they ignore repent amend your ways turn back to god Verse 16, then said the princes to all the people and to, uh, to, all the people and to the priest and to the prophets, this man is not worthy to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spoke to all the assembly of the people. Micah the Morashite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah of Judah and spoke 
to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of the hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the, of the house as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Ju Judah put him to, all to death? Did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord, and the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them? Thus might ye prepare, uh, procure great evil against our souls. And there also was a man that prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shimeah, and of Kijah-Jerahim, who prophesied against this city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king and all the mighty men, men and all the princes heard these words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Urijah heard, he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. Stop there for just a moment. So now we're getting the elders getting a little bit bold. The, the princes have said, we don't see that he's done anything worthy of death. He claims to be speaking in the name of the Lord, which is kind of an interesting thing, process because most of the time the princes and the king did not like Jeremiah's words. They, they burned his scrolls, they threw him in prison, but this time they're standing up for him and saying, we're not really hearing anything worthy of death. You know, we're not sure what, what you guys are going on about. He says he is speaking from God. And then it says there were certain elders, and we don't know what ones, and they got up and they talked about some things that were going on. He says, uh, Micah the Moserite, and this would be from Micah 1 and Micah 3, uh, 3 and 12 and Micah 4, 1 that they're quoting. He says he prophesied the same thing, saying that Zion shall be plowed like a field and Jerusalem shall become a heap and a mountain and the house of the Lord is a high places in the forest. He goes, this man has said, Micah said nothing different really than Jeremiah has been saying. You know, slightly different. He's going plowed under, which means destroyed. <laughs> All right. Uh, and... This was done in the days of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah was long before jo Josiah. He was another one of the great kings of Israel. And he took the response of God and said, okay, we repent. And led to a great repentance of the people. And he's saying, all right, Micah preached to Hezekiah. Hezekiah didn't put him to, put him to death for the same words that Jeremiah has just said. All right? Uh, so basically... Somebody finally comes to his defense within the elders. <laughs> Somebody that's not necessarily a priest or a, or a prophet, but one of the older ones that have been reading the Bible, a rabbi, saying, hey, Micah said the same words, and Hezekiah didn't put him to death. Why are you wanting to put this man to death who's repeating what another man has said? All right? Uh, and it's always nice when somebody comes to your defense to say, Hey, I just want to point out, historically, this is not new. All right? They could have pointed to Isaiah. They could have pointed to almost any one of the prophets that said that God is going to destroy Jerusalem for its rebellion if you don't repent. The elder comes in and says, hey, Micah said this, and Hezekiah didn't want to put him to death. Hezekiah responded by repenting and taking out the idols and, getting, and bringing people where they were supposed to be and, you know, that's what he says in verse 19. Did Hezekiah of Judah and Judah put him to death? 
No, they feared, they feared the Lord and repented. And then they go, and there was a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of the Shem, who prophesied against the city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And verse 21 says, And when Jehoiakim, the king with his mighty men and all his princes heard these words, the king sought to put him to death. So this time it's the king and the princes trying to put this man, Arajah, to death. Now, at Jeremiah's time, the princes are now defending him. I guess they learned their lesson from this, this other individual, at least apparently. Or it could very much be the will of God. The one great thing about God's will is whatever he wants to happen will happen. In Proverbs, it says he turns the heart of the king whichever way he wants. Now, the king may have really, and the princes may really have wanted to kill Jeremiah, but God says, no, Jeremiah's not going to die and turn their heart into a defend, in, to defend him. You know, we think so often that God bends his will to our will. You know, and I don't really understand how we can have free will and still God gets his way every single time because I'm not sure sometimes we have total free will because God will turn us the way he wants us to turn. But he's also, careful how I say this, masterful to get us to make the decision so that it's our idea to make his decision. You know, we think, I think of Saul of Tarsus. He was wanting to kill Christians, and on the, on the road to Damascus, God knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and spoke to him. Theoretically, Saul of Tarsus could have said, no, I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to take it easy on these, on these followers of, of you. But nobody in their right mind would have done that. You know, if we had been knocked off our horse and blinded and God actually spoke to us, you know, telling us that if I want to get my sight back, I had to repent and do things his way, I think I would respond. My choice is stay blind or turn to God. And he was a man who wanted to follow God anyway and thought he was doing God's work until God spoke to him and said, you're not doing my work. And then he decided, okay, I'm going to go full-hearted into your, into your direction. God gets his way and will set it up that we will make the decision that he wants regardless. And here is the same situation. These, these prophets, these princes, are standing up for him. And verse 27 is, When Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and all his princes heard the words, the king sought to put him to death. But Urijah heard it and was afraid, and fled to Egypt. Back in those days, everybody who wanted to leave and get away from things went to Egypt. Why? Well, Egypt was the third most powerful nation in, in there. Plus, it was the furthest away from all the enemies. <laughs> all right? It, you know, they could have run to Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar is the one trying to destroy them. Could have gone to Assyria, but Assyria is being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, so they decide we're going to run to, run to Egypt. Uh, Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin all tried to get Egypt to help them in the battle against Nebuchadnezzar. Didn't work. And so we have all this going on here, and he runs to Egypt. And in verse 22, And Jehoiakim the king sent men to Egypt, namely Elnathan, the son of Ichbor, and certain men with him into Egypt, and they fetched forth Urijah, out of Egypt and brought him into Jeru unto Jehoiakim, the king, who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. 
Nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shephan, was with Je Jeremiah, and they should not give him unto the hand of the people to put him to death. So he says, Jehoiakim has already gone out. He sent a, oh, what, what do we want to call them? Uh, a band of retrieval? You know, what do, what do we call those? Huh? No, scout's not the right word. I'm thinking uh, bounty hunters. Get the right word here. He sent, a bounty, he sent bounty hunters to Egypt to bring this man back. I've got a price on his head. Get him back here. Uh, and he sent two, at least two, if not more, people to Egypt. Now, this is kind of a bold move because Egypt and Jehoiakim are not necessarily on good terms. I mean, he sends these bounty hunters in to get him, and there could have been war between him and Egypt for going in to drag these people out of Egypt. They're in another, he's in another country. He has no authority in that country to drag this guy out. He should have sent ambassadors to him and said, hey, this guy's worthy of death in our country. Send him back to us. But he didn't want to wait that long. He didn't want to go through political channels to get this man back. So he sent bounty hunters after him. And so they get him, they bring him back, and Jehoiakim has him executed. All for speaking the word of God. What are they doing? They're giving a, a balance here. He says, Hezekiah listened to God, and the nation survived because they repented. Here Jehoiakim has killed the prophet, and there's going to be the judgment most likely to follow if we don't listen to Jeremiah. And now Jeremiah standing with him. And Jeremiah has somebody interesting. He has a champion out there amongst them. Uh, Ahikim, Ahikam, the son of Siphon, was with Jeremiah and would not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. Why? Because God had already told Jeremiah that he was not going to be put to death until God was done with him. And we're going to find that by the time we get to the end of the book, Jeremiah is still alive when the city goes into captivity, when the, when the nation goes into captivity. And Nebuchadnezzar allows Jeremiah to stay in Israel after, after the people are taken away. Now, that's way into the future by our book, but you know, still two kings away from this particular event. Uh, but it wasn't from lack of threats. Jeremiah was always being threatened with death, prison, destruction, and he still stayed faithful to God. Now, we do know there was a time when, in the previous where he said, God, um, I'm so tired of being punished, and I'm not going to speak for you ever again. I love that statement because I kind of felt that at some times. God, I'm not going to speak for you again because it does, gets me into trouble. And what did it say right after? Your words burned in my mouth, and I could not help but speak. And I've had that happen before to me where I did not want to speak, uh, not because I was worried about jail or prison, but just didn't want to speak because I didn't want to speak at that time. And the words burned in, in the mouth, and I had to eventually say what God was saying. This is where Jeremiah was. I think he's learned his lesson by this time. Because you know, it would have been easy for him to say, I'm not speaking, there's too many people against me. But he says, well, I'm tired of having my mouth burn with the desire to speak anyway, so I'm just going to say God's words. And that's where we really get good is when we finally go, I'm just going to speak for God. I'm going to do what he says to do without being forced to.
Because God can make us do what he wants done. Now, Jeremiah, yes, his, the words burned in his mouth. He did not have to speak God's word, but it's awfully hard to argue with God. When he wants something done, you, know, you can keep arguing if you want. You can make your life miserable if you want, but eventually God will get you to do what he wants you to do because he'll just make things miserable for you. Uh, and you're going, okay, God, I give up. Yeah, yeah. And I've told you all, I had that time where I fought with God for six years before I finally gave up. And when I said I give up, I literally remember hearing a voice saying, about time. You know, about time that you decided to give up. Uh, you know, so it is true that we need to give up. And it's better to learn to give up quickly into God's will than to make him force you to do it because eventually you're going to do it one way or the other. You, know, you can fight with him a long time, but God has a lot more patience, a lot more ability, a lot smarter than we are, and he wins in the long run. Because if nothing else, he's more patient than we are. He's more patient than we are stubborn. Yeah. Uh, and we can be stubborn and stubborn and stubborn, but God is going to come out as the winner in the long run. Because he has more patience than we have stubbornness. And he proved it you stiff-necked people as he forced them to do what he wants them to do each time. And eventually, if you really don't turn, then he does just what he did to Israel and takes them captive and takes them out of the land. Said, you don't want to do it my way, then you don't get my, you don't get my blessings of living in the promised land. So one way or the other, he wins or he takes us out of the goodness of, that we have been bestowed with. And so we have a choice. Learn to repent and, and bow our knee, knee and heart to him or battle with him all the time, which is a losing endeavor. Lord, we ask you to help us learn to soften our hearts, to live for you and to walk with you in, a, in obedience. Help us to learn to obey you quickly and without fighting and suffering. And we just thank you that you will protect us if we're, do, we're walking your ways. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.